Open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice as your children. Even as we gather here this morning as your church in Altoona, Iowa, as we have lifted your name in worship through song, in worship through giving, as we have read the word of God and as we now look forward to worshiping through the preaching of your word, we rejoice in who you are and all that you have given us in Christ. Heavenly Father, as we come here this morning, we come with many different burdens on our hearts, many different fears that have gripped our souls this week. Some of us come rejoicing and some of us come dragging ourselves here, full of fear and discouragement. And yet, we come rejoicing in your purpose. We may not understand the things that plague us, the worries and the fears that grip our hearts, the circumstances that surround us. But this we do understand and know, that you are good and that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. And so, Heavenly Father, this morning as we come, we pray that even through this passage that you would take our desires, our wishes, and our wants and that you would mold them according to your will. That our fears, our worries, the things that would drag us down would be dwarfed in your glory. That you would arrest our hearts, overwhelm us with a desire to honor you in all that we do, to submit our wills to your will that your name may be lifted high, that the world around us may even see and may worship proclaiming how great is our God. Work in each one of us, Heavenly Father, in this hour. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11 this morning, we're approaching the end of our study in the book of Hebrews. We've, we're, we've waded our way through 11 chapters of Hebrews, and sometimes it feels very much like waiting. There is a lot in Hebrews. We've learned a lot through Hebrews. And as we come to chapter 12, the end is in sight. There's two chapters left, 12 and 13. At this point in the book of Hebrews, we are well aware of the circumstances surrounding the book. We are well aware of the believers to whom Hebrews was written, of the, the things that they were facing. I've reminded you often of the persecution from Rome that was threatening them. On the one side, you have this mighty empire who has turned its attention on the church. This mighty empire of Rome that has outlawed Christianity. And these believers know that it is only a matter of time before their lives are in danger. They've already faced some persecution, but now there is state-sponsored persecution on the way. 
And if it has not reached them yet, it's only a matter of time before it gets there. They've heard stories of what is happening in Rome, and they know that it is coming. And so as they gather, as they read this letter, or listen to this sermon, they know what is at stake. And that is one of the fears that is gripping their hearts. That is one of the things that is starting to pull them. And yet on the other hand, on the whole other side, you have not only Rome, but you have Jerusalem. And the Judaism among which, out of which many of these believers were saved. Already they have lost family and friends and, and opportunities. All of that as they have claimed Christ and identified with Him. They've been labeled heretics, blasphemers. And so between these two extremes stands these believers. And they are alone in the middle, pulled by both sides to abandon the faith. And they are well aware of what is coming. And they are standing there and they are clinging to the truth. And so it's to these struggling churches that the author of Hebrews writes. As we've mentioned often, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the, the greatness, the superiority of Jesus Christ. Which really, when you think about the context in which this is written, makes a lot of sense, does it not? If you're being pulled by this side under threat of persecution to abandon your faith, and you're being pulled by this other side, being labeled a, a blasphemer, ostracized by your family. They are begging you to abandon the gospel and come back to what you know. It makes sense that the author of Hebrews would then write to these believers and saying, it is not worth it. Because Jesus is everything. Cling to the truth. Do not run back. And do not run from Rome. Cling to Christ. He is superior. It is Jesus Christ who fulfills the law of in the prophets. It is Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. It is Jesus Christ who has suffered and who has died for their sins. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ that brings redemption and speaks a better word. It is Jesus Christ who has conquered the grave, disarming sin and death. It is Jesus Christ who has ascended on high and who has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. It is Jesus Christ who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And it is Jesus Christ to whom they cling and it is in Christ to whom they in, in whom they have hope. So the author of Hebrews is writing and he is saying, Christians, rejoice in Christ. Cling to Christ. Do not waver. So we see here that the message of Hebrews is, is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And what we've also seen is that not only is the message of Hebrews the superiority of Christ, but then coming directly from that, the application of Hebrews is to therefore endure. Because Jesus is superior, you must endure. You must endure. You must not fall away. We see this all throughout the warning passages in Hebrews, and now in verses, uh, in chapters even 11 and 12. Endure. 
Endure because Jesus is the Son of God because He has conquered death and hell and sin and He has risen on high and in Him you have hope and He is superior to all others. So endure. As we sit here today, sometimes we can feel a million miles removed from the Hebrew believers. We are not facing persecution. Our lives are not in danger because of our faith. In fact, for many of us, identifying with Christ has cost us very little. But the reality is that we are not that far removed from these Hebrew believers. Just because we do not identify exactly with them, that does not mean that our life is easy or doubt-free. We still live in a sin-cursed world, and we still have that same enemy who is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We do not face the threat of persecution, but we still face the temptation to fear. We feel the strong pull of apathy. We are still well aware of the pain and the difficulty of life. It might look different to us, but it is still there. So as we come to Hebrews 12, 3 to 11, the question this morning is how do we answer these doubts, these questions, these temptations, these difficulties that plague our life, these things that grip our hearts so easily? whether it is the fear of persecution or the temptation of apathy. These things that cause us to doubt and to question, how do we address them? As we look to Hebrews 12, 3-11 this morning, the author of Hebrews encourages us to endure by looking to Jesus, by listening to God's word, and by submitting to God's purpose. Look to Jesus, listen to God's word, and submit to God's purpose. First thing we see in verses 3 to 4 is a call to look to Jesus. This is coming out of Hebrews 11, that famous hall of faith as the author of Hebrews puts forth example after example after example of faithfulness of those who have gone before who believed God. Some of them against all odds they believed. Against hope, it is said of Abraham. And yet every single one of them testifies to us that God was found to be faithful, that it is worth it, that you can make it in Christ. Come to Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. Coming directly out of that, the author of Hebrews says, look at this great cloud of witnesses and be encouraged, and therefore lay aside every sin that would so easily beset us. Prepare yourself to run this race to endure. And now in verse 3, we are called to consider Him, the greatest example of all. Consider Jesus. 
Him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. The idea to consider is to to reason with careful deliberation, to, to sit down and really think through this. I often will tell my kids they'll do something. And it's just sometimes it's not the smartest thing in the world. So I'll say, go to your bed, sit down, and think about what you've done. Right? Take time to consider it. To purposefully work through it in your mind. Consider Jesus. But consider what about Jesus, right? Because there's, there's a lot of things that we can consider about Jesus. But the author of Hebrews here is directing our, our minds to consider specific things about him. Consider him, Jesus Christ, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Consider the fact that he was persecuted. He faced hostility. We know that, do we not? We've read the Gospels. We know the story of Jesus' life. Not just at the cross that he faced persecution, but all throughout his life he was opposed. Everywhere he went, he faced opposition. But specifically here, I think our minds are drawn to the cross. In fact, the passage goes on to say, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. The, application, the, the idea there is Jesus Christ did. He suffered to the very end, the ultimate cost. Consider that. You who are so tempted by the outside pressures by the persecution that that could be coming, by what you might face. You are so consumed by that and fearful of that. Take time to consider Jesus Christ. Recognize that you are not alone in hostility. In fact, look what the author of Hebrews says. Consider him who endured such hostility for sinners against himself. Why? Why does he want us to take time to consider this? Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. As you consider Jesus, let that encourage you. Let that give you strength to go on to face whatever may come because you are not alone. In fact, you will never face more than Christ faced for you. He suffered to death. He faced temptation to a a level and a degree that none of us will ever know. Because he never gave in. Consider the privilege that it is to join Christ in suffering. Consider the privilege it is to be associated with him. The privilege to suffer for his name. Whatever that may look like.
privilege to be identified with Christ. I think the big idea, the, the reason that he's calling us to consider Jesus is, is basically that general suffering, persecution, it does not make you unique. Christian, difficulty in life does not make you unique. You are not alone in the things that you face. Unless you are tempted to think so, consider Jesus Christ. Consider the things that he went through. Consider his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be encouraged. I think this is a specifically strong point to these believers to whom Hebrews is written, the original audience, because there is a very strong chance that they will soon be shedding their blood for their faith. They are facing a very specific temptation. And how encouraging it is to know that you are not alone. How encouraging and strengthening, empowering to know that Christ has gone before you. That no matter what you face, that it is for his name. And there is no one better to be associated with. But it doesn't stop there with consider Jesus. Consider him, be encouraged by his example. But secondly, listen. Listen to God's word. And so built on this example of looking to Jesus and considering him, also look to God's word. See, there's a problem here, and the problem is that you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. You have forgotten what God has said. God did not send you off into this life facing persecution promiseless. You have promises. Remember them and cling to them specifically. Here he draws their attention to Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You see, verses 3 to 4 calls us to consider Jesus. When suffering comes, it addresses suffering in general. But verses 5 and 6 put that suffering in the proper context of God's sovereignty. Consider Jesus when suffering comes and recognize that that suffering is for your good at the hands of a good God. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. The word despise there is the idea of to make light of. Do not take lightly or easily dismiss the chastening of the Lord. I think as we come to this passage, specifically here in verses 5 to 6, our minds immediately, you see that word chastening, you see the word rebuke and scourge, and our mind jumps to 
punishment. But that word chastening has actually a very broad meaning. It's everything from the idea of training to the idea of punishment. It's much like the word discipline that we use. Discipline can mean I can discipline my children where I am punishing them for things that they have done. And yet, discipline can also mean disciplining my children, teaching them to eat right and to exercise and to clean up. I'm teaching them discipline. You see how discipline has a broad range of application there. Two different ideas. Very tied together, though. It's the same here with the idea of chastening. Everything from training to punishment. And that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. In fact, you see that later on in verses 7 and following as he brings this then to application. He's not just thinking of punishment, but he's thinking of everything that we go through in the Christian life. Whether it is training or whether it is a rebuke or a correction, something that is meant to correct what we've done. It's much like the idea of a sports camp. It's the time of year when many sports camps are starting to, to go on. The school year is coming up and, and football season is right around the corner. So many football teams are getting together and they're starting their, their training time. It's lots of practice, lots of running, lots of weightlifting. At the end of the day, they're very sore. And it hurts. And sometimes they have to run laps and lift weights because they have not been listening to the coach. It is punishment. But sometimes it's just training. Not everything that hurts is punishment. But it is all training. That's the idea of the word chastening here as the author of Hebrews is using it through this passage. The idea of punishment or correction is included in it, but generally the idea here is that of training. Do not despise the discipline, the training of the Lord. Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked. There, the idea is corrected by him. But do you see that word discouraged again? It's the second time he's used it in this passage. He used it in verse 3. Look to Jesus so that you are not discouraged. Here, remember what the word of God has said. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. And don't become discouraged. How many of us are tempted to become discouraged? As we look out at the circumstances of, of things going on on the world stage. And not only that, but even in our own lives. So often things come up and we so quickly become discouraged. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is recognize. Don't become discouraged because you recognize that that is the training of the Lord. That he is disciplining you. He is preparing you. He is working his will in you, molding you into his image, doing what is good and right for you. 
Rejoice at the correction of the Lord because you see the purpose behind what he is doing. And it has purpose. In fact, that's what he goes on to say in verse 6. Why? Because for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. Your suffering is not purposeless. It's not meaningless. The things that you go through in life are not arbitrary. God is at work. The things that hurt, they do not testify to you that God is uninterested or that God is mean or that God is vengeful against you. They testify to you that God is good and that you are His and that He loves you. It's a sign of His love, not of His vengeance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But sometimes there are consequences. Because God loves you. And so He brings things into your life molding you into his image, taking those weaknesses, those fears, those doubts, using these things to strengthen you, to grow you, to mold you. Because he loves you. Don't you see that things that hurt in your life are brought by God to testify to you that he loves you, not that he hates you. You might feel alone, but you're not alone. God sees you. So endure by understanding the heart and the purpose behind everything that you face. In verse 7, the author of Hebrews takes this passage from Proverbs 3 and he really applies it. I prefer the way that the CSB words this, and the, the New King James here says, if you endure chastening. But the CSB puts it more in a, um, a mindset type of way. Endure suffering as discipline. It's a call to have this mindset. Endure suffering as discipline. Recognize as the author of Hebrews is testifying to you from Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, that the suffering that you go through is discipline by God molding you, working in you. So then, endure it, recognizing that it is discipline. Do you see how that, how that changes? How that shift in mindset changes how you approach the difficult things that come up in life? And the author of Hebrews is here. He's not taking these difficult things lightly. In fact, he'll address later on. He comes right out and says, this is difficult. It hurts. But changing your mindset about this, understanding that this suffering is brought to you by God for a purpose. It is discipline. God is working in you. Endure suffering as discipline. Because God deals with you as with sons. Really what he's saying here is he is taking 
He's taking the idea of suffering out of the realm of something that I must endure, and he's putting it in the realm of privilege. It testifies to you that you are God's son. It testifies to you that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he is working in you, accomplishing his purpose. That, that shift in mindset helps you to rejoice in the things that God brings. Because I am God's son. In fact, he used an illustration here that we understand. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Whom a father does not discipline? Whom a father does not train? Whom a father does not punish? I think we would all agree that a son who is left alone, who is never trained or disciplined, is a son who is not loved. You see, punish, or discipline, rightly understood, is not about getting even or establishing dominance. It's about teaching. It's about preparing. It's about correcting. It's about pushing forward. And we understand that as parents, as teachers, as people who work with kids. We understand that, do we not? As we correct kids, whether it's in VBS or whether it's your own kids at home or whether it's in the classroom, it's not out of some vengeance or hate in our heart. Right? It's, we want them to get better. We're trying to push them forward. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get these believers to whom he's writing, and even us today, to see that there is joy in discipline. Because it testifies to us of the love and the care of God. If you are without chasing, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If you are without chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The prospect of no correction is infinitely worse than the prospect of any suffering that we would face in this life. Because the, profect, the, the prospect of no correction It's an eternal condemnation. So brothers and sisters, rejoice in the things that God brings into your life. We see it as suffering, but God sees it as discipline, molding us, working in us. In fact, he goes on with this illustration. Furthermore, we have had fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. So now he's getting into the idea of how should we respond to this? How should we view God? We've had fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Specifically, the older you get as you look back, for those of us who, who had fathers, who did discipline us, who took time to train us and to correct us, at least I know, as I look back, I, I am very thankful now for the things 
that my father did for the times that he took me over his knee or that he sent me up to my room, the times when he wouldn't let me do things that I wanted to do. I am thankful for a father who loved me enough to give me discipline. The older we get, the more respect that causes in us, does it not? What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that you should have that same respect for God. You should come to see that these things that he is bringing into my life, these things that hurt, these things that cause fear and confusion inside of me, I'm thankful for God to them. I may not see it now, but I know that he is doing something in me that is good. I know that this testifies to me that God loves me, even though it hurts. We understand that when it comes to human fathers, so shall we not much more readily, willfully, joyfully be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? The idea there of the Father of spirits is in um, opposition to human fathers. Fathers of the flesh, fathers of the spirit. God who is a father who, who deals with much more than just these temporal things. A, a father who, who has our eternal interest in mind. If we recognize the goodness in our human fathers for disciplining us, should we not much more subject ourselves to our Heavenly Father and see His goodness? If I can trust my sinful and flawed Father, if I can be thankful for the discipline that He gave me, even though at times it probably was a little overboard, even though at times maybe He didn't understand, but I'm still thankful if I can do that with a human father, should I not all the more rejoice in a heavenly father? Should I not all the more trust him and submit to his goodwill? In fact, verse 10 says that very th same thing. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. Our human fathers made mistakes. And yet we respect them for the discipline. But God is at work in us. He is doing this for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. Everything that God does in us is for good. It is for our profit to the end that we may be partakers of His holiness. This is really the, the purpose of our suffering. The purpose not just of our suffering, the author of Hebrews is dealing specifically with suffering because those are the areas in which we are most prone to question God. But really, he's saying the purpose of everything that God brings into our life. And God brings everything into our life. So the purpose of everything, of all that God is doing us, is that we may be partakers of his holiness. Everything that we face in this life, in Christ, is sanctifying. Everything has a sanctifying purpose. God is at work molding us into his image. So we come to verse 11 now. The author of Hebrews gets very honest. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
It's an honest admission. Discipline seems to be painful in the moment. In fact, it is painful in the moment, is it not? It hurts. Sometimes in this life, it hurts very, very bad. Not just physically hurts, mentally, emotionally. We are drained, we are tired. And the author of Hebrews here admits the difficulty of life. And yet the reality is that the difficulty of life does not change the core truth of Hebrews. That Jesus is superior and that we should submit to him, trusting that everything he does is for our good. The truth is still true, regardless of what our circumstances tell us. God does not change. His purpose does not change. It doesn't seem to be joyful. Even though I am telling you to react joyfully, to recognize that, to see behind it, the reality is that it's painful. But see the purpose behind it. Look beyond the present pain to ultimate joy. Much like the example of, that we gave a few weeks ago of a marathon runner It is not easy to run a marathon, even those who do it a lot. It still hurts. Your lungs still burn. It is painful. I've never done it, but I'm assuming it's painful. Specifically, the more miles you, you run. The closer to the end you get, the more painful it becomes, and yet... There's purpose there. There's a goal in mind. It is worth it. That pain does not tempt you to quit, but it drives you on recognizing the goal that you are working towards. It is evidence to you that you are getting closer. Chasing does not seem to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, regardless of what it feels like, of what it seems like, regardless of in the moment, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This momentary suffering produces eternal peace. Those who endure are those who have been made new in Christ. And all of it is trading us. All of it is working in us for God's glory. These Hebrew Christians to whom this is written needed to hear this. They needed to be reminded of this truth. And brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of this truth. 
Because the author of Hebrews is right. Discipline does not seem joyful in the moment. It is painful. And the problem with the Hebrew believers is that they were allowing the difficulty and the circumstances of their life to dictate their faith, to fuel their doubt, rather than submitting what they did not understand to the hands of a good God. Don't start with this hurts. Start with God is good. And then let everything fall under that. God is good. That's what I know to be true. This hurts, but that falls underneath the truth of God is good. That falls underneath the truth of God is working all things for my good. Of God is working in me for my good. So therefore, endure. When persecution comes, when fears grip your heart, when doubt creeps in, endure. Because no matter what it is that brings that fear or that doubt or that pain, it is good. It is a product of a good God working in you. So they come to the end of this passage. A couple points of application. Number one, find hope and encouragement as you consider Jesus. Consider what he suffered for you and know that you are not alone. Know that first of all. You're not alone. Jesus Christ suffered himself. He knows pain. He's right there with you. So find hope and encouragement as you consider Jesus. Secondly, find hope and encouragement as you remember God's promises. God has given you promises in his word. And maybe what you need to do this week is you need to go back and you need to review those promises. Maybe you just need to sit and to soak in the promises that God has given you in his word. Praying for God to change your perspective. Help me to see the joy behind this pain. Help me to see the hope behind this doubt. Help me to see the big picture, Lord, what you are doing. Finally, be encouraged by the word of God. Be encouraged as you consider the example of Jesus Christ. But finally, submit your fears, your doubts, and your pain to the sovereign hand of your good God. When was the last time that in doubt or in fear or whatever else it was that you cried out to the Lord with open heart and open hands, Lord, here I am. Do with me what you will. 
I'm submitting myself to you and to your purpose. I trust you and I know that everything that you bring into my life is for my good. I may not understand what this is and I'm honest, it hurts a lot. But I'm submitting myself to you and to your purpose. Do your will in me. Accomplish your purpose, your sovereign plan. Use me for your glory. Mold me into your image. Accomplish your purpose through this so that I may come out on the other side and praise you all the more. Brothers and sisters, I don't know the things that everyone is going through this week. There are fears and doubts, chronic pains, things that you have held on to for years, things that regular, regularly pop up and, and, and bring doubt and fear into your life. This passage is a call to change your perspective. See the difficult things that God brings into your life, not as a sign that you are alone, not as a sign that God does not like you or that he is mad at you, but as a sign that God loves you and he is working in you for his purpose. Submit yourself to his purpose.